If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome back. Rob Brickenridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network. That's some new tragically hip music. Here we are coming up on four years, I guess about three and a half years since the passing of Gord Downing, an event that you know, really resonated right across the country with Canadians. We think back to that uh, final tour the band did. And so it's, it's come as a bit of a shock, a, a very pleasant shock to a lot of hip fans, a lot of Canadians, that there's some new tragically hip music, a new album, Saskadelphia is out now. Now, there's an interesting story to all of this because it's a new hip album. This is old hip music, about 30 years old, music that was recorded at a very important time for the band, very pivotal time for the band. And there's a bit of a story here in terms of how this was discovered, the fear a couple of years ago that a lot of this stuff had been lost, and now how it all resulted in this album, Saskadelphia. Our next guest uh, has certainly been following all of this. In fact, has the inside story on his latest episode of the ongoing history of new music. He is broadcaster, writer, music historian, Alan Cross. Much more to journalofmusicalthings.com. Alan, so great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. I'm so glad this album is finally up because I've been sitting on this secret for months. Oh, have you really? Yes. (laughs) I I became aware of its existence uh, sometime in the winter. And uh, there was, we had to arrange an interview. We had to arrange the radio special, a whole bunch of other things. I had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Oh, wow. It's just so, I'm just so relieved that I can actually talk about the record now. Well, and everyone's talking about this record, and yeah, you're right. I mean, it's for for people who weren't in the know, this just seemed to come out of nowhere and a very um, very pleasant surprise. But I mean, you know, there's a lot of emotional reaction to this. I'm seeing today. This matters to fans. It it really does. Uh, the the whole thing started about two years ago. There was a story in the New York Times about a fire in at uh, in in uh, Los Angeles that had the band worried that they had lost some of their master tapes. Turns out that these master tapes had been moved a long time ago. There were about 65 reels of this tape, and they were scattered all over the place. Some of them weren't even labeled. There was just some scrawled stuff on the spine from Bruce Barris, who was the engineer at the time. So Johnny Faye, the drummer, went through uh, a very long process of locating as many of these tapes as as he could, uh, he's got at least, they ended up with at least 25. And there's probably, well, like I say, there's 65 reels of, of two-inch tape out there somewhere that has to be uh, found. Now, what we ended up with are six songs that were recorded in September 1990 at a studio in New Orleans called Kingsway. This was for the Road Apples album. 
they had way more music than could fit on a single CD. So they had to make some very difficult choices as to which songs to get rid of and which songs to keep. And in many cases, it came down to a coin toss because this, the, the material was so strong. So what, what they did was they looked at, okay, is this song a little bit too similar in style and feel and groove than this song? Uh, okay, well, if that's the case, one of those songs has to go because you don't want people listening to an album saying, hey, track one sounds like track seven. You know, they, they, they don't have any range. So you got to get rid of the similar sounding songs. And the band was, at that time, in a... Uh, a cycle of recording, touring, recording, touring, recording, touring. So as soon as they finished Road Apples, they went back out on the road. And they basically forgot about these tapes. And Don Smith, who was the producer, was entrusted with, with dealing with them, which he didn't really do. And as a result, all these tapes scattered all over the place. So when Johnny Faye found this stuff, he was like a dog in a bone. And he was determined to salvage as much stuff as he possibly could from these tapes. And it was very difficult because... Uh, magnetic tape degrades over time. And when he found these tapes, they had to be very carefully refurbished and rehabilitated and repaired so you could get the music off the tape and onto a digital source so the songs could be mixed properly and then ultimately released. So for them finding this and, you know, having mourn the loss of, of Gord Downey, right? And and to hear his voice again and revisit all of this. And I can just imagine the, the wave of emotion that, that they've gone through. But talk about the decision then to to put this out, right? So that so that fans could enjoy this as well. Yeah, that was the whole idea. There apparently is quite a bit of hip material in the archives that needs to be released. It's all about maintaining the legacy of, of probably the most Canadian band of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have their old manager back, a guy by the name of Jake Gold. He was with them for the first 17 years of their career, the glory years. And one of the things that the, the remaining four guys want to do is to make sure that hip music stays alive for current fans and, and fans in the future. And going through the archives and finding unreleased material is one way of doing that. If you go online and Google unreleased tragically hip songs, you'll find a list of about 65 tracks. Now, the six songs that appear on Saskadelphia are on that list. But there's also, apparently, 59 others. So where are they? That's a very good question. And uh, I think what they're going to be doing, Rob Baker told me, they're, that they're going to be going through uh, album by album by album, going you know all the way through the hip catalog, finding out what sort of stuff is associated with those recording sessions, and eventually putting them out. It gets a little bit easier when we get towards the latter half of the Hips career because at that point they had their own recording studio in Bath, Ontario, the Bathhouse. So they were able to record, you know, store some of the stuff that they did themselves rather than rely on somebody else. So there is more hip stuff coming. We just don't know what. And there could be more Road Apple stuff coming because, again, there, there are several dozen tapes that are still unaccounted for. And it's interesting because Saskadelphia, which is the name they've given to this new album, that was originally going to be the name of that second album, wasn't it? It it was. They were touring and touring and touring and wake up one morning, where are we? I don't know. I think we're in Saskadelphia. They thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> so they, they told the record label that, uh, yep, this is, uh, this is what we're going to call the next album, their American record label. And they said, yeah, a little too Canadian. Uh, so come up with another name. And, okay, well, I will... We'll We'll show you. We're going to call it Road Apples. 
And if you know anything about horses, <laughs> you know what road apples are. And, uh, you know, Rod Baker tells me, says, yeah, we're going to beat our critics to it. We're going to call our album Horse Poop before the critics do. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what a really funny thing, what they did later was they, they actually went out and found some actual road apples, encased it in Lucite, and presented that as a gift to a number of people in the industry across the country. Oh, really? That's interesting. Oh, yeah. But it, isn't it ironic, right? I mean, and, and, it, and it sums up the band in a lot of ways that a little too Canadian. They certainly <laughs> had a following in the U.S. They had success in the U.S., but, you know, in a way, that, that kind of defines them, I, I think, in a good way, doesn't it? Well, it certainly defines them for us. Yeah. I remember when Gore, Gore Downey died, uh, I think the greatest tweet that came out that day was Canada closed, death of the family. Right. And, you know, when you have the prime minister crying because the singer of a rock band has died i mean you don't see that anywhere on the on the in the world no and uh if if you go to the official biography the official uh news release for this album was written by an indian immigrant who came to canada around the same time that gord died and this person uh came to understand and learn about canada by the country's reaction to the Tragically Hip and the affinity the country had with the band's music. So, I mean, you, you, how Canadian is that? An immigrant learns about Canada from the hip. Yeah, that kind of says it all. Now, look, we're obviously in a, in a phase here where there's not a lot of touring going on, period. But, you know, is, is there any chance that the, the remaining members of the band would ever perform any of this live? I mean... How do they feel about that idea? Yeah, it's it's not going to happen. The one thing that is going to happen is on June the 6th, when they are given the Humanitarian Award at the 50th Anniversary Juno Awards, the four members will reconvene on stage, but with a one-time-only front-person performance from Leslie Feist. So this is echoes what Nirvana did back in 2014 when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They had Kim Gordon of Sonic Youth, Joan Jett, Lord, and uh, St. Vincent sub in for Kurt. And if you talk to the band, say, well, why, why did you agree to this? And they said, well, Gordon would find it very amusing that we've replaced him with a woman, and he would approve. Right, as mentioned, much more at a journal of musicalthings.com. And uh, this weekend, the new episode, The Ongoing History of New Music, with the inside story of the Saskadelphia album. Alan Cross, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. If, if, when you listen to the record, you are going to be immediately overwhelmed by all kinds of emotions. Prepare yourself. All right, Alan, all the best. Appreciate it. You bet. Alan Cross, uh, music writer, journalist, broadcaster, historian. So something he's known about for a few months and uh, did a pretty good job keeping that secret. And uh, here was the big news this week uh, for Tragically Hip fans. So, yeah, the uh, ongoing history of new music will be out this weekend. So the full inside story, uh, interviews with band members on how this album all came together. So it's quite an interesting tale of, you know, almost kind of forgetting that some of this stuff existed, then thinking that it had, uh, you know, gone up in, in flames in a fire. And then realizing that, no, it still exists, and, and here it is. So they took that name that the uh, label rejected 30 years ago, and they've applied it to these songs that were recorded at that time. So for Tragically Hip fans, this is going to take you back to that phase in the early 90s, right? And 
you know, for a lot of Tragically Hip fans, that's, you know, I was in high school, or I was, you know, just in my early 20s, and just the emotion that comes with songs from that period in your life anyway. But just to hear those sounds, hear Gord's voice as it was back then, it's, it's going to be quite something for a lot of fans, I think. So much more at uh, Alan's website, journalofmusicalthings.com. A judge has ruled that the downing of Flight uh, 752, Ukrainian Airlines Flight 752, was a deliberate act of terrorism on the part of Iran. Now, that's this judge's opinion. It's not necessarily the uh, position of the Canadian government. Well, joining us to talk more about uh, this ruling and what it all means, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Mark Arnold. He's a Toronto-based lawyer, certified specialist in civil litigation, represented the families of those killed aboard the flight in this case. Mr. Arnold, thanks so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Good afternoon. And Calgary, nice to speak to you. Well, we appreciate you making some time for us here. So tell us a bit more in, in your perspective. How, how significant is this ruling? This is an unprecedented decision of the Ontario Superior Court of Justice, unprecedented in that no other case that I know of, no other court in Canada has ruled against a foreign country and has found that it intentionally, as an act of terrorism, fired missiles into a commercial aircraft and brought it down. Unprecedented in Canada and likely unprecedented in world jurisprudence. It is a significant decision. Yeah, it is. So tell us a bit more then about the, the case that you presented here. How do you go about convincing a judge of, of your arguments in a case like this? Well, the, the, so we had two, hurdle, two hurdles to overcome. The first is liability or fault. Typically, a foreign country is immune from lawsuit in Canada unless there are, ex, unless there are exceptions. Iran and Syria are two countries designated under Canadian law as state sponsors of terrorism. We had to prove to the court on a balance of probability, we had to tip the scales of justice and prove to the court that this was a terrorist attack and that it was intentional, and we succeeded in doing that. Was there anyone there from Iran's side? I mean, what was, did Iran make any kind of a, a submission in this case? Right. So Iran was served with the claim in early September by the federal government, as they're obligated to do. Iran had 60 days under procedural rules to defend. They failed to defend. We went to a court and we got the right to note Iran in default, which we did in mid-December 2020. This was a motion for default judgment. Iran was not there, much to our regret. We really wished and expected that Iran would attend and, and, and defend itself, but it did not. So what does this mean now in terms of, of damages? This means that we may now proceed to the next stage, and that is a hearing in open court in which a civil jury, we've asked to have this claim decided by the community, a civil jury will decide what justice looks like. And justice, which includes monetary compensation, includes more than that. Let me give you an example. This morning, I called one of my clients who lost his wife and daughter, and I asked him how he felt. And he said, for the first time since this incident, I've been able to sleep through the night. That is how part of how we see justice. 
Yeah, it, I, I can understand how this would, would be very impactful for the families and, and you know, in, in moving forward here. What about the the foreign policy implications here? I mean, that's obviously outside of your purview. You're representing uh, your clients here and making an argument in court. But is, is there that side of it? Right. So this is a private law claim brought by four families against Iran. At the same time, we understand, and I don't know it as a fact, but I understand through the media sources that the government of Canada is, is in the process of doing something. It may, that something may include bringing Iran to the International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Court. Both courts are, are United Nations courts, and only governments have access to them. We also have heard anecdotally through the media that Canada may attempt to negotiate with Iran. But Canada has been entirely opaque and uncooperative with this private law claim brought by the families. Why is that, do you think? I don't know the answer. It's speculation. But I yeah. suspect that at some point in the future, Canada may wish to reestablish diplomatic relations with Iran. And so I suspect Canada is being political and diplomatic. And while the Canadian officials... Uh, express concern and sympathy. For example, Ralph Goodale, in his December report to the government, his excellent report, um, uh, the government mandated that report. But we have no sense as to what our government is going to do. They're certainly not going to do it quickly. We expect to have a judgment for damages within two or three months. That's how quickly the private law claim is moving ahead. And you may have already seen Iran's reaction. A spokesman for the uh, Iran's foreign ministry said, quote, everybody knows the Canadian court has no jurisdiction over this air crash. Uh, they're not likely to cooperate. What, what are the chances of ever securing those damages? I invite the, uh, the uh, officials in Iran to come to the Ontario court. Please come and please explain why this judgment should not uh, follow against you. Come to our court. This claim is done under the laws of Canada, not under the law of Iran. We have the right to do that under Canadian law. And frankly, it, it, it continues to be Iran's belligerent approach to what happened. They've denied families access to bodies and body parts. They've denied families access to, to artifacts, to, to their suitcases, to their toys. My client... My client wanted the wedding ring of his wife, and somebody said, well, they've recovered her body, but there's no ring on her hand. Wow. Well, these families certainly deserve justice. That much is for sure. We'll, we'll see where this all goes from here. Uh, more at gmalaw.ca. Gardner Miller Arnold, LLP. Mark Arnold, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really My appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for Thank All you the best for your you, sir. There you go. That is Mark Arnold. He's a, a Toronto-based lawyer, practices in uh, civil litigation, and was representing the four families in this case. And he's right. I mean, this is a, a fairly unprecedented ruling from a Canadian court. So this Ontario judge ruling that, yes, Iran did deliberately shoot down this plane. And therefore, these families are entitled to compensation. Now, the original lawsuit was looking for $1.5 billion from Iran. It's now up to a jury to come back and, and decide what Iran is on the hook for here.
this story, this has been evolving for a while, and, and, it, and it, certainly there are some alarm bells here. Uh, the Globe and Mail with uh, some new details on the story this week. Scientists working at Canada's highest security infectious disease laboratory have been collaborating with Chinese military researchers to study and conduct experiments on deadly pathogens. Seven scientists in the Special Pathogens Unit the Micro, National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg, and Chinese military researchers conducted experiments and co-authored six studies on infectious diseases, such as Ebola, Lassa fever, and Rift Valley fever. Publication of these uh, studies, publication dates range from early 2016 to early 2020. Global Mail has also learned that one of the Chinese researchers from the People's Liberation Army's Academy of Military Medical Sciences worked for a period of time at the Winnipeg Lab, which is a level four facility equipped to handle some of the world's deadliest diseases. Now, two of these Winnipeg Lab scientists, as you may have heard already, were fired back in January after the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, uh, CSIS, recommended that their security clearances be removed on national security grounds. CSIS has also been concerned about the nature of information that one of them might have passed on to China's Wuhan Institute of Virology. So, look, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear that there's national security implications in all of this. And why on earth would the Public Health Agency of Canada be cooperating with the People's Liberation Army? So we've got some specific security concerns with some of these individuals, but I think there's there's some broader security concerns just in terms of our approach in dealing with these matters with an adversary like China. Well, joining us for some thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Andy Ellis. Uh, he's with Ellis Global Risk Assessment, former CSIS Assistant Director of Operations. Mr. Ellis, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. So, look, I mean, you, you've seen it from, from the inside, obviously, but I mean, just from your own expertise and your history in, in this uh, field, how shocked were you to, to read about all of this? Uh, very shocked. Uh, disappointed, I think, would be, a, would be a more accurate term. Um, you know, each agency of the government has a responsibility to, to lay out those persons uh, to whom uh, security clearances ought to be granted. And then from that point, the security, Canadian Security Intelligence Service does a background check and then makes recommendations to that department. Uh, in this case, it seems bizarre to me that a Chinese virology lab uh, would be associated in any way to Canada's most sensitive uh, laboratory, a level four laboratory in Manitoba. It, uh, it's dumbfounding um, from a practical point of view, uh, from a political point of view. And, you know, from a, from a health point of view, and, and the list goes on. Uh, it uh, I was I was shocked when I'd heard from the Globe and Mail what uh, what was taking place, and uh, and that they had asked for my opinion. Yeah. Well, and to what role then do, does the intelligence community play in in you know signing off on any of these kinds of relationships or providing any kind of a, a security background check on some of these individuals, or, or would Public Health Agency of Canada handle all of this themselves? Well, that's unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how one looks at it, the, the Public Health Organization of Canada uh, makes that decision themselves. So they decide whether or not they're going to enter into relationships with, with foreign parties, and uh, normally with the approval of, of the minister, uh, Minister of Health in this case. Uh, and then from that point, they uh, really contracted out to CSIS to do the background check and to provide them with advice. The advice is provided by CSIS, but whether or not that advice is followed is the uh, 
entirely west with the responsibility of the of the deputy head of the of the uh, the deputy minister who's responsible for that particular facility so it would still be public health canada who would make the final decision as to whether or not a security clearance would be granted so essentially it seems like we're just creating additional work for CSIS here that maybe the prudent thing would have been to just say no to all of this at the get-go but once something like this goes ahead now it's up to CSIS after the fact to essentially assess the risk of these arrangements or of certain individuals then correct that's you know that that's absolutely correct i mean it one doesn't want to go on to a wild goose chase you know go, go, running around and doing background checks on on people that you know perhaps there ought not to have been a background check in the first place. The decision was relatively simple. Uh, but there's been some strange um, behaviors, uh, I'll say, by the, by the government in the last year or so that you know, it kind of leaves one struggling. Uh, there, was, uh, there were stories in the media about the military being very strongly encouraged to work with the People's Liberation Army of China in joint training exercises in Canada. Right. Yeah, there's some, there's some financial advantage to that, but... From a military security point of view, it's a really, really poor idea. And the military had to push back against, you know, government masters who who felt that uh, aligning oneself with China was more important than, the, frankly, in my opinion, national security. This is no well, yeah. uh, this is this is aligning themselves with a, you know, with a power. It's, there's nothing against the Chinese people by any means, but the Chinese right. government is an adversarial government who doesn't follow the same rules that the rest of the world does. It doesn't follow the same you know, financial rules, doesn't follow the same political rules. And, uh, you know, they're flexing their muscles and uh, they're doing so rather successfully. In, in this case, enabling themselves to have firsthand knowledge of the research and development that's taking place in this country. Well, that's just it. I mean, obviously, they have vested interest in in this kind of information. And, and look, it's, it's one thing to say that, yeah, look, China's a global superpower, and we have to learn to live with that, or we have to find ways of engaging them productively. I, I think you can make those kinds of arguments. But it's hard to see what the justification of something like this is, because now we're, we're very clearly into the realm of national security, aren't we? Absolutely. I uh, couldn't agree with you more. The yeah, you have to deal with them in a certain way, but you have to deal with them as uh, as Reagan once said, trust but verify. Uh, yeah. And I don't think that verification was taking place. Uh, CSIS has said for I'm going to say decades that uh, has warned in its public uh, documents of the of the risk of joint ventures, uh, joint ventures with very you know various companies that you know may advance that seem to advance the interest of that company. Normally, gee, you know, I can get into this massive billion plus person market. So I'm going to bring these guys into my company because I'll, you know, I'll build bridges, which is a great idea normally when people are playing fair. But uh, CSIS has warned time and time again of the uh, of the risks of theft, of redirection, of enabling cyber attacks, and the list goes on. Cyber attacks that are both uh, aimed at you know future exploitation and you know and, and acquiring information, but also uh, in the uh, in the event of war or or, or other. Uh, negative consequences. They're 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 in a position to uh, to shut something down. So you know it really needs to be done with care, and uh, that doesn't seem to be the case here. And it's it's relatively common. Uh, there are a lot of joint ventures, you know, with post secondary educational institutions in this country who get you know money from foreign firms that they ought not to be working with, uh, but. The you know economic advantage is is too uh, too tasty to uh, to ignore.
So is there, do you think, uh, fair to say, a sense of frustration at CSIS? I mean, CSIS is not political, and, and nor should they be political, but their job is to recognize security threats. And it's hard to imagine a bigger security threat to Canada than, than the Chinese government. So here we have CSIS doing its job and trying to, to manage this threat. And in, in a lot of ways, it feels like that work's being undermined. I think that's I think that's entirely true. I think there's a certain there's a naivete in Canada anyway. You know, whether it be in this case this is espionage, whether it be espionage, whether it be cyber, or frankly whether it be terrorism, uh, you know, it can't happen here. Uh, it would never happen to us. Uh that naivete has existed certainly through my thirty years uh with the service and uh, you know, it ebbed and flowed at different points in time. Um, you know, very, very heavily uh, engaged after 9-11, but slowly disappeared after that. And, you know, trying to convince people that uh, that the threat is real and the threat is, you know, in some cases, in the espionage case, imminent, uh, is difficult. And they look at, people tend to look at their own bottom line and say, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna take a risk and I'm going to risk my bottom, you know, I'm going to risk my, uh, my security in order to mm-hmm. advance, you know, the interests of the company, of the department, of the lab. And, uh, you know, those decisions aren't always sound. Indeed. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, More at ellis-gra.com, Ellis Global Risk Assessment. Andy Ellis, appreciate your insight on all of this. Thanks so much for making some time for us here. My pleasure. Have a nice weekend. You as well. Uh, Andy Ellis, Ellis Global Risk Assessment, uh, former assistant director at CSIS, uh, some 30 years at CSIS. So, yeah, like I say, I would think that, that frustration is probably the order of the day at CSIS, that they must be banging their heads against the wall constantly. So we tell CSIS, okay, look, you know, you, you identify the big threats to Canadian security, and you do what you can to neutralize them. Okay, well, it's China. Even though things are a lot better here in Canada, certainly our vaccine rollout has improved, uh, there's very much... Uh, more of a supply south of the border. Now, hopefully things are starting to loosen up and that we'll be able maybe to import a little bit more from the U.S. than we have. But we got a situation right now where it's relatively easy to go to the U.S. and, and get a vaccine. Now, I say relatively easy because crossing the border at the moment is not so easy. Now, some confusion this week around that question. What if Canadians want to go across the border just to get a vaccine? We've had a few times now already, for example, the Blackfeet Confederacy in Montana. They've set up a drive through clinic right near the border for Albertans to come down and get a vaccine and drive right back up into Alberta. No getting out of the vehicle and more importantly, no quarantining when you return. But other than those kinds of uh, unique projects... It doesn't appear as though we're prepared to let Canadians go get a vaccine and come back and avoid quarantine. Although that message did change briefly this week. So joining us to talk a bit more about why we're so against this. Look, if the Americans are fine with this and and this can help get more Canadians vaccinated, I don't know why we wouldn't embrace this. Uh, Matt Gurney had a really interesting piece uh, up at thenationalpost.com on this issue and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Matt, always great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good to be here. 
So, look, I mean, for us uh, folks here in Alberta, I mean, it's a bit of a hassle getting to the border. Uh, I know for folks in southern Ontario, it's a, a little bit easier under normal normal times. But how much demand, first of all, you think there is for Canadians to pop over the border, get a vaccine? You know, that's actually a great question. And I'm going to give you a terrible answer. I don't know. And the reason I'm, I'm uh, cautious here is because I actually think we're doing better than all of our forecasts showed us that we were. So let me just yeah. give you a, a very personal example. About a month ago, I kind of looked at Ontario's plan and I thought to myself, you know what, I'm not going to qualify for a vaccine until like mid-June. So I wondered if I should find some way to go to the U.S. But then things ended up actually improving really quickly in Ontario and I got my first shot in the first week of May. So if, if we continue being well ahead of schedule, I think that is going to take some of the urgency off of yeah. Canadians. So long as we're hearing about people roughly our age getting their first shot or soon getting their second shot, well, okay, that, that'll tamp down expectations. But there are obviously people who are in different circumstances than I am, who have health needs or they've already been waiting a long time. And I think this has got to be particularly acute for those who live right near border communities. I'm two hours from the U.S. border. Uh, I'm four hours from the Michigan border and two hours from the New York state border. If I was living 15 minutes from Michigan, like if I lived in Windsor, for example, that's where my column was about, where you can see Detroit across the river. It must be incredibly frustrating because Rob, as I said in my column, I went on some local pharmacy websites in Windsor, uh, in Michigan, Detroit, and basically I put, put a pin down within a mile of the bridge that connects Canada and the uh, U.S., I just checked all the pharmacies. You can have your pick of any of the approved vaccines. You want Pfizer? No problem. You want Moderna? Mm -hmm. Sure. You want Johnson & Johnson, a one and done? Line right up. You can pick your appointment time in 15-minute increments today, tomorrow, Sunday. They have more vaccine than they know what to do with. And to be separated from that vaccine only by the Detroit River must be really frustrating. Yeah, I would think so. I, I think you make a good point because it's it's fairly easy right now for Canadians pretty much right across the country to book an appointment for their first dose. But there are a lot of people who feel like they're in limbo or they're growing increasingly uncomfortable with the, the interval between doses who would love the opportunity to get a second dose. And I think if Canadians could pop across the border and do that, that would alleviate some of the pressure on our system here. Those are people we can check off the list. And, you know, those are fewer people we're going to have to worry about once we start to pivot in that direction. So I think that's where there's the benefits. But do, do health officials necessarily see that? I don't think they do. I think some of them certainly do. The column I wrote was about something that happened again in Windsor. And just for your listeners, Windsor's in southwestern Ontario, right? It's right next to Detroit. Basically, you have to go north from Windsor to get to Detroit, by the way. It's very yeah. confusing. It's just the contour of the river. But yeah, you go north into Detroit. So what had happened there is that um, the, the pharmacies in Windsor have so, uh, sorry, in Detroit have so much vaccine, they're in a risk of having some of it spoil. And Canadian officials and American officials are obviously in touch. 
a the president and CEO of the Windsor Regional Hospital spoke with his American colleagues, and they confirmed not only did they have a ton of vaccine, but they were willing to work with Canadian officials to find some way to figure this out. The Americans are in a complicated position. The federal government has basically said they uh, they won't be exporting right now. They're loosening that up, but the idea basically was to have exactly what you described. Canadians drive in in a loop, get the jab in their cars, and return right to Canada. And the CEO and president of the hospital, uh, David Musage, had asked, can quarantine be waived in, in these circumstances? And the answer was yes. Uh, essential travel is permitted to the United States for life-saving medical care. And Public Health Agency Canada confirmed that receiving a vaccine would qualify. Great! That was the green light from Canadian officials. Obviously, we had to work things out with American officials, but we had a green light from the Canadian government to allow Canadians under certain circumstances to go into the States, get a jab, and return and skip the 14-day quarantine. But two days later, PHAC, Public uh, Public Health Agency Canada, starts walking that back. They start sending statements to the media going, well, nope, this this doesn't actually apply. And something that actually blew my mind a bit, Rob, was that they said that the media reports constituted misinformation, like it was some kind of propaganda campaign. Rob, I uh, the National Post obtained, it, that's the polite way of putting it, right? I've seen these emails. I've seen these communications. The Public Health Agency of Canada said overtly and in plain language, and I quote this in my column, going to the U.S. to get a vaccine qualifies for the quarantine exemption, period, full stop. Mm-hmm. And then two days later, they changed their mind and accused the media of, it, of misinformation. It is outrageous. I have no idea how heads are not rolling at that agency. Yeah, and here's the thing. Look, if Americans don't want us coming in and showing up in their pharmacies and taking their vaccines, and that, that's fine, right? I mean, that's, that's their call. That's their decision. Uh, yep. But if they're willing to cooperate on this, if they see this as an opportunity to, you know, facilitate a reopening of the border at some point soon, or just even in the short term, as you say, prevent doses from going to waste, something we should look at here. Now, I, I, I will concede the point that it's it's probably difficult to police this. It's one thing if someone just, uh, you know, in the case of Windsor, hops over the bridge, goes to the pharmacy, gets the vaccine, comes back. What's to stop people, right, from stopping at a restaurant or maybe making it uh, an overnight uh, little staycation in Detroit? I mean, Michigan's had some struggles with the virus. Is it a legitimate concern, do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, there's two separate issues there. First of all, is is there a willingness on the Americans to let us in? That seems to be decidedly unclear. Officially, the answer is no. Uh, officially, U.S. policy is that driving to the U.S. to get a vaccine does not constitute a valid reason to enter the country. Unofficially, I have heard of Canadians getting waved through by sympathetic border guards, and I'm sure you've heard the same thing. Oh, yeah. This yeah. is this is a rule that is being observed only in the breach. So whatever the official U.S. policy is, Canadians are getting waved through for vaccine appointments. Not everywhere, not 100 percent of the time, but it's happening, and I know this for a fact. Um, the other issue that you raised, though, is whether or not it's safe. That actually is a totally legitimate argument. If Public Health Canada wanted to come out and go, yeah, you know what, we're worried about Canadians, you know, getting that vaccine, going out to dinner, you know, seeing a baseball game and then coming back to Canada, that's a completely legitimate concern for them to have. 
But I would say two things in response to that. You had mentioned how Albertans are popping into a Montana, I think it was, to get uh, vaccinated in their cars, returning to Canadian territory without ever stepping foot in America in a loop. There was a plan in Windsor and Detroit to establish something very similar to that. That would have just eliminated the danger. And Public Health Canada ought to be open to that. The other point is, if that's their concern, they should have said so in the original email instead of giving us a green light and then ripping the rug out from us two days later. Absolutely. Well, we'll leave it there, Matt. Uh, Your piece is up at uh, nationalpost.com. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Have a great weekend, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Have a great weekend. You too. There you go. Matt Gurney, columnist for the National Post, nationalpost.com. And yeah, the story here is the Public Health Agency of Canada just completely reversing itself and then blaming the media for that. And look, I guarantee you, nobody in Alberta who drove down for that drive through vaccine clinic is going to be quarantining, nor should they. And I think it's an opportunity for the Alberta government maybe just to make that clear. Look, we're not going to enforce that against any of these people. These are folks who lined up for an opportunity to get a vaccine. They barely left their vehicle. There's, there's a little loop road, I think, just, um, just south of the border station of the Carway crossing there, which I think is where they had this drive through clinic set up. So it's, it's a handy little road where you turn off and you loop through and then you come back out on the main road and you come back into Canada. So steps are being taken, obviously, just to steer people in that direction. This is where you go. Now you come through and you go back in. Obviously, the border guards are aware of this, uh, the Blackfeet Confederacy. And it, it's their vaccine supply, by the way, that they were sharing with Albertans and have done a few times. They're the ones coming there. They're the ones setting this all up. So it's really just kind of their, their generosity that's made this happen. So it would make no sense at all to tell any of these people that you have quarantine for, for two weeks. Now, I will say, and I mean, Montana's in a, in a much better position than Michigan is. Things have improved dramatically in Michigan from where they were, you know, a month ago. And again, that's a good news story because, you know, you want to see the ability of some of these U.S. states that are further ahead to turn the corner. And the fact that Michigan was still such a hotspot was, was kind of worrying. But they've definitely improved the situation. Montana, though, is in a way better position. I mean, in all honesty, if Albertans were going down to Montana, would that really concern us? I mean, I'd be more worried about someone going to visit Vancouver or someone going to visit Winnipeg. You don't have to quarantine if you get back from those places. But the idea that, you know, you go down to Great Falls and you got to quarantine for two weeks when you get back, it just it seems arbitrary and honestly kind of pointless. So it's something we're going to have to address at some point. It's not the Alberta government's call, even though obviously it's a, it's a uniquely Alberta situation given the one state we share a border with. So would I have a big problem with someone taking a day, going down to Great Falls, getting a vaccine, coming home, maybe stopping at Walmart or Target along the way? I, that wouldn't really bother me in all honesty. So if Montana is more than happy to share their vaccines, maybe it's something we look at. Maybe we can build on what's been done with the, the Blackfeet Confederacy. Because I do think it would, be, uh, it would definitely be helpful. 
and and I'll concede that you know a lot has happened that is is to a large extent vindicated this first dose first approach. And when it comes to first doses, Canada has now reached the same level as the U.S. But obviously, the U.S. is way further ahead when it comes to second doses. It's been a lot of talk lately about the idea of vaccine passports. And, and that actually means a lot of different things, potentially. I mean, strictly speaking, the idea of a vaccine passport to travel internationally, I think, is a very real prospect. And obviously, Canadians are going to have to understand not just Canada's rules, but the rules of countries they may be inclined to visit. The vaccine passport has also kind of become shorthand for the idea of proof of vaccination in order to gain access to certain services, certain kinds of businesses, certain kinds of locations. Now, nothing formally has been proposed. I mean, Israel is is a real example of this, where they had a, a system set up, kind of the Green Pass system, I think it was known as, where essentially vaccinated individuals were able to access hotels, swimming pools, gyms, theaters, indoor dining, nightclubs, all of these things but you needed to show that proof of vaccination in order to to access those businesses. So as as we're talking about all of this and considering all of this, Canada's privacy commissioners, the federal, provincial, and territorial privacy commissioners, uh, put out a joint statement this week, laying out some of the potential privacy concerns of going down this path and maybe some guidance in, in shaping these policies if indeed we feel they are necessary. So joining us to talk a bit more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Alberta's Information and Privacy Commissioner, Jill Clayton. Ms. Clayton, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hi there, Rob. Thanks very much for having me. So talk a bit about, is, is, you know, from your perspective anyway, what, what prompted this letter, why you felt there was a need to, to lay out some of these concerns and recommendations? Oh well, I think that um, like most Canadians, um, certainly I've been I've been reading all sorts of articles in the paper about the possibility of vaccine passports, and um, as as you just mentioned, we're seeing other um, other countries around the world that have introduced uh, something like a vaccine passport, and um, yeah, and, and clearly that's something that that Canada is thinking about about introducing. And as it happens, my colleagues and I, uh, the Federal Provincial Territorial Commissioners, were getting together for our annual meeting this week. And um, and it, it's become a, a topic that we're all discussing. And we thought that it would be timely to um, to issue a statement just to make sure that um, when, when we're thinking about a vaccine passport, whether it is in fact a passport kind of document for international or domestic travel, or whether or not we're talking about something like proof of vaccination to um, to obtain goods and services within Alberta, for example, uh, just to make sure that um, that that the governments and businesses are aware that privacy is something that needs to be taken into consideration early on in the design of a, a program or, or at the time of collecting this information. Right. So you know, we're, we're talking about proof of vaccination. I mean, it, it, we're, we're talking about medical records, essentially, then someone has mm-hmm. been vaccinated. That's a part of their medical records. So, I mean, there, there's inherently a privacy dynamic to all of that then. Oh, absolutely. So, um, as you mentioned, uh, my colleagues and I across the country, we um, issued a vaccine uh, passport statement yesterday. But at the same time, um, my office issued some guidance to private sector organizations that might be collecting uh, proof of vaccination. And that's what 
that's what we've uh, chosen to call it. But yes, that might look like um, a, a digital uh, uh, certificate of, of a kind or a digital representation of, um, of vaccine status. So somebody might be showing something on their phone uh, to gain access to goods and services, for example, or they might have a piece of paper that their pharmacist gives them um, or their doctor gives them after they've received um, their vaccination. And uh, certainly we're seeing stories about uh, businesses in Alberta that are interested in um, perhaps offering offering free meals or, or free drinks or something to individuals right. who can show their, their vaccine status. So so we know it's something that, uh, that businesses are thinking about and we wanted to provide that guidance. But yes, it is personal information. It is information about an individual and their, and their health status. Um, and sometimes these documents come with lots of other information. So personal health number, telephone, address. Um, those sorts of things. So um, for individuals, they should also be aware that um, that it might not just be health information, vaccine status, might be other information as well. And as you say, I think a lot of this has been more in the abstract or the theoretical. I, I don't think there's there's been any serious steps taken yet beyond what, what you just alluded to, you know, the, the free beer or, you know, free burger for getting a vaccine. Have you have you mm-hmm. seen or has anything been been reported to you yet that has raised any alarms? Um, well, not so far, but I, I do know that there are conversations going on. And so, again, I think, um, you know, certainly for me and, and my colleagues across the country, the idea was to get ahead of that and, and right. just put that reminder out there um, if these kinds of initiatives are being discussed. So, for example, a government issuing some sort of verifiable vaccine passport for travel, um, that's a fairly significant initiative, and we want to make sure that privacy is taken into consideration there. Um, For my part within uh, my own jurisdiction here in Alberta, um, I know that some businesses are looking at uh, at these sorts of things and and offering these kinds of um, uh, discounts, for example. And so I just, again, want to remind them that this is actually a collection of personal information, even if you're just viewing uh, a vaccine, proof of vaccine, right? Uh, it's still a collection of information. There are ways to do it in a way that are is uh, compliant with the legislation and privacy sensitive. And I really did also want to, um, you know, remind organizations that there is a provision in our legislation here in Alberta. You can't require somebody to consent to collection of personal information beyond what is necessary to provide a service. So really, if you're thinking about requiring proof of vaccination before letting somebody into your store, for example, that's quite a different um, matter than asking somebody to show that they had a vaccine and get a free beer sort of idea. Um, so there are these these other considerations that uh, what, what, what the law says is that businesses have to be reasonable about the, the purpose for collecting information, and some things will be really straightforward. So I'm going to give you a discount if you show me vac- uh, proof of vaccination. I'm not collecting anything beyond just a quick view of something. You know, that's one thing, but then to uh, deny somebody entry, for example, uh, because they can't show that their medical status to you, that might be entirely different and um, is more likely to be an, an unreasonable purpose and an unreasonable collection of information. Yeah, well, there's three kind of guidelines or principles here that, that you know, we should look look at or the lens we can kind of look through for this necessity, effectiveness and proportionality. Mm-hmm. Right. Is it is it necessary? How effective is it at achieving that purpose and and how proportional it is? So that that's, I, I think, an interesting way for for businesses to approach it then. Yeah, I think, um, you know, those are definitely considerations, I think, um, in deciding whether or not um, it, it makes sense to request proof of vaccination. 
So um, again, th- those are those are terms that we used in the in the joint statement, um, which is sort of general high level principles that apply across Canada. Um, they're the kinds of things that go into um, are the factors in assessing whether something is is reasonable, and, and reasonable is the test in Alberta. So not to get too nuanced on the legislative <laughs> differences, but um, mm-hmm. the, the test in Alberta really is: is it, is it reasonable? Do you have a reasonable purpose for collecting this information, and um, and how much information do you need? Like, can you view it? Do you need to record the information? Um, and and yeah, those are those are the kinds of questions you should be asking. Are there other ways of of achieving the same thing? If instead of recording the information, for example, um, is it necessary? Necessary comes into it when you're thinking about denying a service to somebody. Um, you can't, as I said, require somebody to provide information that's not necessary. So if it's not necessary to ask for proof of vaccination before you let somebody shop in in your store, um, then you're not going to be able to require them to provide that information. Remembering, of course, again, as you already pointed out, vaccine status is health information. So usually it's it's a little bit more sensitive and um, uh, and so the you know we're we're we don't want to be requiring people to provide health information if it's not necessary. Right, which which I suppose can be subjective, and I, I think of examples of of you know say a, a nightclub for example, or or a concert. These sorts of settings where we have large groups of people, you know, very close together, very intimate settings, and and situations that under the existing rules simply aren't allowed. So if if we see proof of vaccination as a way of safely facilitating those kinds of events, w- would that be viewed differently? Yeah, so I, I think that is a is a really good question, and I think um, you know that's the sort of thing that we're starting to see in in other jur- jurisdictions around the world, and it's something that I think we should be alive to here in Alberta. So um, again, if if we're if we're talking about opening something up, and and um, you know, are we going to allow people to congregate in large groups? Again, the the law doesn't change if we're talking about allowing somebody to um, or requiring somebody to provide proof of vaccination to enter a retail store to shop versus to enter um, you know a, a nightclub where you're going to have a whole lot of people together. The law is the same. The law is still. Do you have a reasonable purpose? Are you collecting to a reasonable extent? And you can't require somebody to consent beyond what is necessary. So the circumstances, um, when the circumstances change, uh, that may change uh, the determination of whether or not something is is reasonable um, in in those circumstances. One thing I would say is that I think... um, you know, when we talk about uh, necessity and proportionality and effectiveness, that's where you want to be thinking about about those kinds of things and whether or not there is, you know, clear legal authority to be collecting this. Um, for example, if there if there was uh, law that required proof of vaccination in order to allow people to to congregate like that in really large groups, that would make it a lot easier for organizations, right? They would have clear yeah. legal authority and it would obviously be be reasonable. But absent something like that, organizations or businesses are going to have to be making their own assessments about whether or not it is reasonable. And if you're thinking about it in that nightclub scenario that you just put out, um, so the, the, we really would be asking questions like, how effective is it? Um, what's the likelihood that people will be able to provide proof of vaccination? Um, what about people who um, you know, have a medical reason for not 
for not being able to to receive a, a vaccination? Um, are you going to deny them entry and are you discriminating against them based on um, health status? Um, so that starts to engage all kinds of, of um, other laws, uh, human rights issues as well and, and fairness issues um, become important in scenarios like that. So again, I, I'm, I think at this stage of the game, we're trying to issue some guidance and remind people of privacy issues, but there are other uh, other laws and other values and other other um, factors to take into consideration as well. So um, I think the the recommendation would be to be you know pretty thoughtful about it before you start to require people to provide this information, um, and when you start to think about denying services based on their ability to provide that or not. Right. And so, I mean, in some ways, I suppose this is uncharted territory, right? I mean, the law is the law and the law doesn't change just because of unique circumstances, but it's not really something we've had to to face before. Nothing quite like this. Nothing quite like this, although um, it reminds me a little bit, I will say, you know, kind of going back to the mid-2000s and, you know, early days of, of private sector privacy legislation in Alberta and, and a lot of questions and um, around uh, whether or not it's reasonable to uh, obtain drug and alcohol test oh, results yeah. before allowing somebody onto, you know, work premises or um, in the particularly safety-sensitive um, sites. So... Um, you know, I, I think we're still seeing cases in the courts on whether or not it's reasonable and whether or not you can do random testing and in what circumstances can you test and, um, you know, pre, pre-entry pre testing versus post-incident testing and all that kind of thing. So this reminds me a little bit of that because it's, it is sort of a, a, an intersection of both private sector and, um, and health information at the same time. And also there's that little piece of human rights. Can you, um, you know, the, the question of discriminating against somebody who has an, an addiction um, when you're, you're denying them entry to a site based on a drug or alcohol test. Um, anyway, so it, it reminds me of that. And there aren't a lot of really clear-cut um, answers to questions. They're, they're not really black and white when you get to, um, when you get to those questions of whether or not you can deny services or deny entry to somebody. So um, I suspect it'll get a little bit more complicated before it's all resolved. I suspect so. Well, let people know uh, there, there is much more of the website, links to the relevant uh, legislation and, uh, you know, some of these questions and some of the guidance that you've posted. It's oipc.ab.ca. Uh, Jill Clayton, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Yeah, thanks very much. Have a great long weekend. You as well. That is Alberta's Information and Privacy Commissioner Jill Clayton. And uh, as mentioned, uh, she and her colleagues from across the country, including the federal commissioner, putting out this statement this week saying, look, you know, if we're going to go down this path and, you know, these conversations are happening, here's what we need to keep in mind. Here's the privacy side of this that we need to balance. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.